What's shaking, cats and kittens? I'm Rob Lee from Getting to the Truth in This Art. And this podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Bazaar. Bazaar is a gift shop for those seeking the strange and unusual. Got morbid curiosity? Got an interest in natural history? Bazaar's got you covered. Bazaar specializes in antique medical equipment, jewelry, prints, funerary antiques, and many other morbid gifts. The inventory is ever-changing. I'm wearing a great death's head moth pin, and I'm enjoying this hand-poured candle called Overgrown Cemetery. It's great. It has the studio smelling awesome. Head on over to 3534 Chestnut Avenue in Baltimore, Sinan Hamden neighborhood, and see what they got to offer at Bazaar. Tell them Rob Lee sent you. Takeout is cool, but delivery gets pricey. So, like a phoenix from the ashes, indoor dining is back at Forge Eatery. I use the analogy because the food is fire. It's a new approach to farm the table. No overalls, just dope food. Try my favorites, like the mushroom stew with pine nuts and ricotta, the cornmeal fried happy oysters, and the seared duck breast. Also, ask about the chocolate chip cookie tins. Mini chocolate chip cookies with a dusting of sea salt. Simply delicious. Head on over to ForgedEatery.com to check out the current menu options and make a reservation today. Forged is located at 3520 Chestnut Avenue in Hamden. Welcome to Getting to the Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee, and my next guest is a reporter living in Baltimore and was previously the editor-in-chief of Baltimore, the Baltimore City Paper, a contributing writer to Spin. His work has appeared in New York Times, Vice, The Village Voice, and many other publications. He's a co-author with Baynard Woods, of uh, I Got a Monster, The Rise and Fall of America's Most Corrupt Police Squad. We have Brandon Soderberg. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I was trying to do like a Tonight Show intro and I was like, there are a lot more words here than I realized. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I gave, and I always try to give that that thousand foot view. But uh, firstly, how are you? And secondly, um, getting into that spiel about your work and what your background is. Uh, I'm doing great. You know, I feel like we're sort of heading out of the pandemic, as at least as we're recording this. So that's nice to know. I think we're going to be back to uh, something resembling normalcy, and hopefully, we learned a lot. But I'm feeling pretty good. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's the weather's getting nicer. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> and I see the, I see the bike in the background. So definitely, uh, that's that's the thing. Going out there and kind of being able to be out there and uh, you know when there's people around and you're riding you're able to see more things see more people and you know i'm obviously looking at the road but it's a different wave it's a different environment when you're out there yeah and then then for me it's central to how i do my work is like i like the way i find stories the way i understand the city um is through walking tr- biking and taking the bus everywhere and trying to learn so like the idea of that sort of having that both as just like it'll be nice to be out in the city that I love but also like back to these sort of crucial tools for how I try to do my work or just to sort of be and exist in the city and feeling like I can do that again because we're coming out of this is really nice and yeah it's been a very odd um <laughs> year or so doing reporting because like I'm so focused on like scenes and characters and like you lose a lot of that as a reporter if you're mostly just on zoom you know what I mean like I don't have like it's so great to interview someone for a story while they're doing something or yeah. while they're doing their work and to not have that it makes like it can make your stories a little drier so I'm really happy to sort of and just like less get a little more energy in the reporting and the work I'm doing as well yeah I, I when you describe when you describe that i immediately thought of like svu when they're like looking at someone while they're doing their job and it's like 
he's not going to put that rug down. He's going to keep <laughs> doing that rug. <laughs> you know, he's going to keep doing his work. Um, so in the last, uh, let's see, I, I feel like I've had a dark shroud over me, but in the last like 15 hours, I did the whole ebook. I, I listened to the book. First off, I dig the book. Um, awesome. and, it, and it felt almost like a trip down memory lane, uh, because it's like within the last five to six years and is in Baltimore, it plays. And we talked a little bit before we started that. Uh, you wanted it to play like a movie and with these asides, but also to me, it felt like a limited series. It felt like this works in this way. It's like, it would be really fire if it was a limited series. And I learned one thing from it amongst many things, but I learned one thing that really sticks out. Um, somehow neglecting to wear your seatbelt turns into gun charges. <laughs> I don't know if I read the most recent handbook, but you know, police handbook, but that's, that's the thing. That's a key thing I took away from this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really appreciate you saying that. Like, yeah, we really wanted the book to kind of feel like I said, a movie or, you know, like a mini series, like something that kind of moves a little faster than your average book or maybe closer to a novel to be clear everything in the book is reported and true but we wanted to kind of have that energy of like a series or a movie and yeah i mean something that um has really become to always cared about become kind of an obsession um you know the book is dedicated to defense attorneys fighting for the fourth amendment which is our reasonable right to search and seizure what you really see in the book and what i've really seen talking to literally dozens and dozens of people that have been victimized by these cops and this police is like these sort of excuses that cops will use to get in your car, in your pockets or in your house. And chief among them is things that are, that can't be really uh, proven, especially couldn't be proven or disproven a few years ago before body cameras, which is, you know, you want to stop someone just saying they weren't wearing a seatbelt. They can say all they want. They were wearing a seatbelt. Um, you know, another great one is uh, I smelled uh, marijuana. Cops love to lie about yeah. smelling weed. That's another one because there's really no way to disprove that. And like, I've seen trials where even the stop was based on, I smelled marijuana then they search the car, find no weed, but they find a gun or some other drugs. And the jury isn't really instructed. The judge and the prosecutors never say, so this was a, the pretense for the stop was that you smelled weed, but you actually didn't find any weed. So where was the weed you smelled? There's one example in the book that's really amazing, which is one of the cops claimed in court um, that he could smell marijuana from across <laughs> by the incinerator across the highway with all the windows up. And then the way that that became like kind of disproven in court, which is kind of fascinating was that the um, defense attorney sort of pulled out the weed that was found because they did find weed in this case. And like asked the jury, like, can you smell this? It's 10 feet from you. (laughs) Not really. So the idea that they could smell it across two, four lanes of traffic, all the windows up by the incinerator is just a lie. Um, hopefully, as we've been moving away a little bit from can- regulating can- like a pre- criminalizing cannabis, which is great. But yeah, that's another not wearing a seatbelt. Your windows were tinted because, of course, they can stop you and say, we thought your windows were past the legal limit. Then they go, oh, well, we were wrong anyway. We're still going to search your car. I mean, yeah, yeah, these things are crucial to you know, there's the big crazy stuff in the book, cocaine de- dealing and all these things. But the sort of day to day running up on people and searching them illegally is like the bread and butter of the Baltimore police department's, uh, uh, criminality really. And, and one of the things I got out of it, just that kind of, um, like enabled things was just this weird data driven approach. It's like the data says this, you're getting these results. So 
Vic Mackey it up. I don't care. Keep <laughs> keep doing your thing. <laughs> and and that is like, because I'm a data analyst by day. So it's just like, that's not how you use that. It's like, drill down. <laughs> what are these extra steps here? How are we getting here? Well, a gun is off the street. That's all that matters. And that's really all you have to produce under these circumstances. You can skirt the system and abuse and take advantage of that shit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the real thing is like these numbers to put in front of the city, to put in front of the mayor, to put on the news and say, hey, we seize this many guns. And if you don't think about it hard, and I don't want to come off as like someone who knows everything. So a lot of what I know, I learned from the book. So I always try to try to hard not to be too much of a lecturer on this stuff. But like you really start to think about it more and you start to realize, wait, like, yeah, these idea that just getting guns by any means necessary is going to sort of reduce crime because you have this basic idea that's like okay well if one less gun is on the street therefore one less chance someone being shot but what i think uh the book shows without kind of saying it too loud because the book tries not to be too sort of preachy um i I think especially because me my politics and Boehner's politics are pretty clearly what they are we really want to make sure the book wasn't just us sort of saying like yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's just an incredible story that really involves a lot of people whose lives are really affected. And so kind of carrying that story to sort of, you know, project my own politics in it, I didn't want it. We didn't want to do. But I would say that, like, yeah, the data driven thing really crumbles because what you really see, um, especially with these cops, was that they were sort of running up on anybody they saw. Mm-hmm. Really, I shouldn't say anybody. Young black men almost exclusively. Um, young black men sitting on a bench, hanging out, sitting on a stoop, waiting for the bus, sort of in a so-called high crime neighborhood, which is also racist in its entire construction. And they go after these people. Um, They roll up on them in unmarked cars. So, you know, in vests, if you, if, if, if if a Chevy Malibu pulled up on a corner where I was and I would run too, then they use the run as the reason to search them present somehow suspicious behavior. And then what you start to really see, or I started to see, I should say is um, that this sort of chaos that they create adds to crime. It adds to crime in the fact mm-hmm. that like they're um, if you get, if you, let's say you are someone that was chased down and you did have say drugs on you, they steal those drugs generally. That's what they were doing. So then you have to go to someone and say your plug or whatever and be like, so these cops took all my drugs and the guy and you're, the guy's going to be like, oh, OK, so you got arrested. They're like, no. It's like, OK, so the cops came and took all your drugs. But you didn't get arrested. And there's an example in the book that I don't think is too much of a spoiler yeah. of a man who was robbed for ten thousand dollars who couldn't pay a drug debt as a result and was murdered. And so yeah. you have this direct connection between these cops, not only not really stopping that much crime. Because also what they would do was when they got a gun, they would just stop working for the day. So if they got a gun 45 minutes into their day, they were just like taking the rest of the day off. Yeah, it's like I've got my quota. Uh, we're all set here. And the thing that, that, that gets me, it's the, again, going back to the data, it's just when it's this, uh, this book, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, it's, it's kind of one of these things where you're using that to to give credence to racial profiling and just racially driven police work in a city that's had a rich history of that type of bullshit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, if uh, there's a book that I've really been obsessed with over the past few months called Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman Jr., um, a black uh, lawyer and a former teacher who writes about D.C. and mm-hmm. traces the sort of obsession with um, gun 
gun violence and saying the fix to gun violence is to seize more guns and also with drugs before the drug war sort of is starting to somewhat taper off. He makes a really compelling argument for how like we've really fueled a whole another level of mass incarceration through how we're policing people by the idea that because they have guns, we need to do whatever we want and get them off the street. It doesn't matter if it's legal, or illegal. It's a really amazing book that's um, I'm really sort of just prognosticating about all the time, no, but no. it really, really blew, it really kind of blew my mind. And like, um, I'm actually, um, uh, there's a story I've been working on for a while that by the time this is out, will probably be out um, about DC, Washington DC's gun recovery unit, which mm-hmm. operates really similar to Baltimore's gun trace task force. Um, and in DC, who who have um, in DC has like some of the most strict gun control laws in this whole country. Um, those stri- that strictness allows their police to be even more sort of aggressive and shady about approaching people. And in like some of the wards in, in DC, majority black wards, um, there is this kind of premise that you can wa- they walk up to you and ask, "You got a gun on you?" Of course, again, when I say people, they really mean young black men almost yeah. exclusively. Um, they ask someone that question, got a gun on you, which is a crazy thing to ask someone off the street. Yeah. If you're if you're walking down the street, you immediately are going to assume you're going to answer the cop, even though they've asked you a question. So it's really a consent search. You can mm-hmm. just say no, but no one says no to the police. So then you say, no, I don't have a gun. And then they go, when Mr. Soderbergh, um, I also should say, of course, um, as a white male, especially, I will never be have this. I will never <laughs> encounter this kind of police harassment. Right. Well, I'm using myself as an example. Mr. Soderbergh, you know, he was evasive when we asked him if he had a gun. He didn't look at us. He walked backwards. Then they use how you answer the question they ask you to search you for a gun. So it's like it's a really big problem with policing. And I think we really have to start thinking about it. Um, and the Gun Trace Task Force is sort of the logical extension of this kind of like Guns, 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 like a, an idea that sounds good that really went really. And, and I, I've sort of written some other pieces about this, but really goes south and really makes a war on guns that operates a lot like the war on drugs and repeats all the same problems of that and really ends up arresting and incarcerating the very same people as the war on drugs. And and, and that's the thing that I, I wanted to touch on before we move to this, this next question. I, I think like some of these things, whether it be the rebranding, I feel like ultimately what's the goal here? Is it to get more of a certain demographic, black males or what have you in, in jail? Sure. And I, I think it's this rebranding and it's nuanced because it's been done for so long that it's like, oh, we have to do the burden of proof to, fr- to prove that racism exists. It's like, right. no, they've been doing it for so long that it's just, it's, it's like, it's almost like when, when when Bruce Lee is like, your style is not to have a style. It's almost that to me. It's just like, oh, yeah, you know, I just slipped that punch. I'm in the matrix. I'm in the racial matrix. That's what's happening. And it's it's no it's no different. I, but I think kind of what we're, we're seeing as we're recording this with um, what's uh, the victimization of like the Asian community, I think get rid of the, 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 the bullshit hashtags and all of that stuff, because it's confusing more people than anything else. Call it what it is. You know, this is racism. This is urban terrorism. This is domestic terrorism. It's these different things, but don't try to come up with something catchy and all of that different stuff. So the same as what these things have been, you're targeting black people, you're targeting black males. It's racism baked into the system. And the, the, the thing I literally fist bumped when uh, the, the, the part about like, yeah, we have like um, federal documentation that shows that there's just racism baked into the policing in Baltimore. And I was like, yes. And someone looked at me like, what are you doing? 
<laughs> I was like, what's that I, book? That's so cool. To, I, I mean, the, the best thing about writing a book is like hearing how people experience it because it's not the same as an article or even a long like sort of cover kind of feature. It's like something that I mean, you could read the book in probably four or five hours if you could, if you felt like it, but hearing people respond is awesome. And like, yeah, that's exactly, I mean, like the department of justice said like the Baltimore police department is through and through a racist organization, <laughs> police is in a racist way. And like, you can't, you know, and it's also this thing that, um, to shout out kind of another sort of more uh, academic book is Alex Patel's, um, end of policing, which is another great book. And he really thinks a lot about data and also gang quote unquote mm -hmm. gang databases. Another example of how like we, there's all this sort of data gathering that, um, to show things that are really obvious. Like you don't need more data. You don't need more data on stop and frisk to show that stop and frisk is should is is racist in its construction. Like, and this allows them to perpetuate it. Well, we're doing a study on it, you know, or oh, uh, you know, we're thinking about this, or like, you know, and another thing, it's a little bit alluded to in the book, um, but it's kind of if you understand the long history of Baltimore policing, is like this sort of rebranding also of these kind of police units so they get in trouble yeah um, name <laughs> yeah like you know the violent crimes impact division it comes some kind of controversy it becomes a violent crimes impact section um you know there's a thing in the book that like um when you begin the book you're with the first chapter primarily you're with four of the officers when they were working separately from the other ones before yeah. they all came together they were in a, a unit called the special enforcement section then they all get moved over to the gun trace task force it's like these names become another sort of you said like branding issue it's yeah. like really and i and just to sort of, i've been really deep in this you know yeah. currently in washington dc there's a lot of uh, Black Lives Matter DC, especially in Stop Police Terror DC, have been really attacking in a really powerful way these, this gun recovery unit in DC. Um, and I've been speaking to the Metropolitan Police Department as I write this story. Yeah. And their response to me most recently, which made me just like, I laughed so hard, like my girlfriend was like, didn't know what's <laughs> going on. And it's because they sent me a more like, well, we've moved on and you know we have a new unit. It's called the Violence Reduction <laughs> Unit. You're like, like, come on, like, you know, gun recovery unit, they're bad, but the violence reduction unit, the VRU is going to be so different than the GRU. It's just like, it's a scam. And it's like this way of perpetuating yeah. these ideas in ways that sort of dodge. And then the frustrating thing about it is like, then a lot of the news, especially sort of your, your, your TV news and your daily news will sort of follow these stories and be like big changes in the police department. They're renaming all their things. <sighs> Come on. Like we, we should not keep falling for this. You know, we have a, uh, in 2017, we created a thing yeah. called in Baltimore called the district action team, DAT, um, which is just another unit doing the same thing. No. Um, just recently, just an example, the DAT was created um, to sort of ideally in theory, like police to, reduce homicides, um, which I'm not, I don't believe that police actually have any ability to reduce homicides really short of homicide district is solving homicides. Yeah. But um, <laughs> there was a recent over Easter, there was a big kind of block party and they broke, the police broke it up. Cause that's what they do when uh, black people try to have fun as they come and interrupt yeah. it. Um, anyway, the people that were sort of breaking <laughs> up this Easter block party were a district action team people. And I would like, remember I tweeted this, I was like, wait, we created this unit in 2017 <laughs> to stop violence, and now we're using it to break up block parties, you know, like people having fun on the holiday. And that, and then I think that feeds into some of the conversation we've been having about abolishing police, defunding yeah. the police. It's like you create these units, you tell us that we need them, and this is why you need them. And then before you know it, you find out that they're like 
you know, arresting 17 year olds at a block party. They're not even doing what they're intended to do. It's, it's, it's a mess. It's almost like you want to be like what I do in the other podcasts. Everything is a bit to me. It's like, I could try to find humor and everything because it's sometimes it's just ridiculous. And it's like, it's just like the unit formerly known as that's yes, what I feel exactly. like happens here. And, uh, it, it's, it's just wild. And I, I look at stuff and I just see stuff and I'm like, ah, that's not normal. Or, Things will just happen, and I notice a certain date because the, one of the podcasts uh, that I was uh, doing was uh, Metrocast, um, and we did that for we did that for like three years, but up until Trump got in, and we and, and it, I started writing this into a script. We literally finished an episode when the initial news about Freddie Gray came over. So we were just wrapping one up and in this turn, this sense of being desensitized to things, it's like, oh, that happens here all the time. Right. Uh, you know, this this type of thing. And then it becoming a, a bit of a segment of like updates as to what's happening here. And lines were being drawn. Uh, we were part of a, a bigger podcast network and. That's when I got on my, I was waving my Baltimore flag. I was like, how dare you? You know, cause people were taking shots and I was like, you don't know what it is here. You don't know anything about this place. So, you know, shut your trap. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. I want to, I want to ask this one real quick because I like to get this, this insight. Um, what is it like covering a city that has this reputation of being as dangerous and, and, and covering stories that are more on the, the darker side? Cause I, I saw that you, you had the, the hip hop work that you were doing earlier, you were covering like pop culture and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But as far as like covering like the crime and, and, and some of the stories that are here, how, how has that been for you? So, yeah. So really briefly, I started as mostly writing kind of music criticism and essays and things like that and kind of connecting them to politics and race. Um, And what I really started to see as I was interested in that was clearly the constant interruption of in the world of hip hop by the police and by law enforcement, again, Mm -hmm. for racist reasons. I mean, one of the earliest examples that kind of moved me was um, uh, I wrote about back in 2011, rapper Lil Boozy was being it was incarcerated and was being charged with a murder that it seemed pretty clear he didn't have much to do with. They were using his lyrics and these things to suggest he was this violent person. And I spoke to his family a little bit for that story. And so just kind of getting into that, I started to see that side of it. I was always kind of interested in it. And another example of that for me is like, um, I was both always been interested in Baltimore club music and gone to club shows most of my life. And you sometimes see those being broken up by cops and things like that. So I sort of saw this intersection between art and policing, racist policing already. Um, And, you know, you get this classic thing. I think we've all experienced this point more of just like, you know, you would read about a police raid of a club or something. You're like, I was there. (laughs) This is not what happened, you know? So anyway, And so when I, um, and so I, that's sort of like, I think without exactly realizing it prepped me for it. So I was always interested in sort of the deeper stories there. And then into 2014, I became a staff member at Baltimore city paper, um, and started covering protests. This was like, they were really important. I mean, there were some really powerful protests in Baltimore surrounding, um, the, um, Michael Brown's death and things like that. And so I was covering that. I was sort of seeing the same thing. Like I was at that protest last night and the police, the police version of that is not the real version. And that kind of kept moving. And so I started to sort of, it was sort of a strange, but easy transition. Um, and then I found that like, I really, what I always liked about writing about music or anything was the people. And there was the same kind of 
entryway into these stories if they're kind of people-focused stories. You know, sometimes these people were people that were really tragically harmed or hurt by police or families damaged. It still was like about learning about people. Um, in terms of, you know, the sort of navigating it, I mean, I think, again, like, certainly um, I don't feel particularly afraid of anyone other than cops. Like, those are the only people I've ever been messed with in doing my reporting or harassed yeah. by. Um, you know, I think if anything, what's really helpful for me is like, I sort of feel like you get a deeper and more profound sense of how violence and things like that operate in the city by covering it. And in some ways, even though I guess it's really up to the reporter, but for me, it made me better understand it, which at least, um, and see the sort of complexity of it. And so that for me is like, move me away from like, I, I guess maybe some people cover the city and cover crime and that makes them more scared of the city. If anything, it's made me understand it more and see mm -hmm. where that violence is happening. And then I think that like, yeah, then I sort of have to deflect these conversations. I would have at a bar or whatever. What do you do? I'm a reporter. What do you cover? <laughs> I cover police and drugs and guns in Baltimore. Oh, Baltimore. And they're like, Oh, all right. Yeah. So I've sort of, but I've sort of equipped myself with enough, like, uh, knowledge and awareness of that to sort of push against it. And I also think my background, like I'm from Baltimore, my family's from Baltimore. I was raised in a family that was, did not trust the police. I was taught to not believe like the police. So I sort of maybe had a head up there. As yeah. A, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, for me, it's just like a way of better understanding it and then hopefully conveying that to other people. I think that with the book, you know, even I think that hopefully you get a, even though it's a really messed up story, um, I hope you get some degree of a feel for the complexity of the city. And I hope through the portraits of the people in the book that are victimized by the task force, some of who are people that you maybe wouldn't, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily want to have a lot of sympathy for because yeah. they think of drug dealers and things like that as bad. You really see where these, you sort of see the complexity of even the drug trade that, you know, the, in the book, I hope. And I like the way it's described in it. It's not like, oh, this person is buying drugs. It's like, no, this customer or because that's ultimately what it is. And, you know, a lot of times um, when they have these these conversations around numbers and all of this different stuff. And I, I remember it was one night I was going to see Shaolin Jazz and it was a Ravens playoff game against the Titans, the, the one that they lost. Uh, and I had a leather kimono on. It's, 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 it's getting weirder. And I was going to Creative Alliance and I was just like pissed going there because I'd watched this whole state of Baltimore, people just trying to lobby and for, for who's going to be the next mayor at the time. And I'm just losing, losing my marbles because uh, you just hear people just using stats to try to push this narrative of you know, pretty much be afraid of Baltimore. I'm the person that's going to fix it for you. It's like, yeah, okay. I don't think the people here are listening. And the thing that was wild about it, it's, it's in this East Baltimore area where I live at. And I'm like, based on what you're saying, I should have been shot by now. Based on what you're saying, I should not see well-meaning white folks wearing flip-flops. It's like, they should all be wearing track shoes. And it was like, this is, I was like, stop putting this out there because you turn these people into numbers, you turn the people of the city into numbers. And that's why you can have people get on the news and spouting off publicly, broadly. And like, I work in higher ed and you see these, this data is like, I'm afraid to come to Baltimore. It's like, because you have people out there continuing this idea as opposed to getting to the root thing and humanizing individuals. And it's like, get to the root thing of why is this happening? When I hear a story, I'm like, all right, what's the, what's the other piece of what's under this? I start analyzing it. Where, give me the five whys. Why did this happen? 
and keep going down and down and down other than black people are violent. That's why this happened. Moving on. That's not how it works. And if you dig too deeper and I I approach most things in that manner of, I want to understand this better because I'm a human. I'm from the same part of town. Why are they doing it? And we have some overlap, but I don't do that same thing. That has to be something that's missing here. And I know it's missing. Where is it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, we have this, I mean, I think you're, I mean, the, 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 the homicide rate in this city is devastating to be clear, but the sort of, um, the throwing around of this 300 plus number, I've always sort of had a problem with because it's like, we've created this rubric in the city and former police commissioners have told me this, that, you know, 300 more homicides. If you're a police commissioner is kind of the beginning of the end for you, or if you can't stem that, but then it becomes this implicit thing that maybe 285 or even 191 Mm -hmm. is okay. And that's sort of really fraught. And then at the same time, yeah, you have this idea that these are, you know, um, this idea that crime is, just happening everywhere and you have this odd thing where the people that are kind of blathering the most about the violence people that aren't in the city mm-hmm. or certainly aren't in the city um very often maybe for ravens games and things like that which is perfectly fine but like those kind of people again i'm sort of thinking especially like sort of county white folks or like uh dads in white sneakers from shrewsbury pennsylvania who come down or whatever <laughs> um they're not gonna be the odds of them being affected by violence, even being sort of robbed are pretty low. Yeah. And they don't, and they don't understand the sense that like where they are in the city is pretty far from that violence. And they don't understand how that violence has been sort of pushed to these parts of the city because of segregation and redlining and, you know, that police police differently in East and West Baltimore, where through segregation and redlining, we've moved, black people too, like all these things affect it. And so it's like this really like powerful and useful, but really messed up political kind of football for a lot of people to sort of point Mm -hmm. to. It's like, look, if you're going to the Ravens games or you're going to Fells, like you don't see and experience that violence. Like you don't have any, you're not part of it. You don't see it, but you sort of use it and you see that a lot. And that's really frustrating. I agree. One of the things that that catches me and I want to get your take on like the creative scene here, because you've mentioned that you've been around the art scene and and things like that. One of the things that gets me, I I travel. Well, when we could travel, uh, I I would travel and uh, I I, it was a few times I got some good insight when I was in New Orleans. And it's like, you don't sound like you're from here. What's up with your shoes? You might get robbed. (laughs) And the dude just gave me the rundown. I was like, all right, good to know, Mm -hmm. you know, these details. And you move a certain way. And other times I'll go to other places and I'm just like, look, I want to get a lay of the land. I want to be around the real people. And I remember one of my buddies who he's from Owens Mills and he's like, yeah, I'm from Baltimore, you know, to people that I was like, there is a clear delineation. I was like, we've walked around in Baltimore together. You avoid places that seem to be a little too black or raucous. He's, he's a black dude, but there's that County thing. Mm-hmm. So what is, what is your take? How, what is your take on how, when people seem to use Baltimore for this, this attachment to Baltimore as a stamp of approval while also throwing around, you know, a sketchy or I want to leave here and things like that. What, what is that? Cause it feels like it's playing both for like, Hey, give me the stamp of approval. You know, we're not about bullshit in Baltimore, but then there's that other side of, 
yeah, but I want to leave and it's sketchy. Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, like, you know, I think that what you have is you have this sort of use of the city and then kind of relates to the previous question, the use of its sort of reputation as a tough place or a scary place or a violent place. And it is those things. It's obviously much more. It's mm -hmm. sort of used to sort of give oneself some cred. Yeah. And then, um, but then it's also seen as like a stepping stone because you want to go to move to New York or even DC or things like that, which you can't, I can't really blame people for wanting to do that and get the expand their horizons, but the sort of coming through Baltimore and kind of getting rubbing the grittiness all over you or whatever <laughs> to seem kind of cool is like a, a, a thing that happens um, on all levels. And, and it even happened. And what I think we're really, and I imagine this is true of most cities, but especially Baltimore do these things I'm talking about like segregation, like, I say I'm from Baltimore and I kind of stress that, but if people start to talk to me, I try to really stress like, look, I grew up in Highland town. I remember the creative Alliance when I was in Patterson as a kid. I think I saw Dick Tracy at the Patterson and I was like, I really remember that vividly, you know, with my grandparents, but like, so like, okay. So that understanding of Baltimore for me is important, but maybe doesn't communicate to sort of an outsider a foundation person or trying to give you a grant, but it's really important to stress that because like, I can't possibly see, I mean, an example is like, uh, you know, the great writer D Watkins friend. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he was, I think that he and I are from probably within a few, maybe even a few hundred or thousand feet of each other where we grew up, but his, uh, his, his experience is radically different from me. And I can't possibly pretend that what I experienced as a white person in Baltimore and Highland town has much has a lot to do with that. And that kind of subtlety would in theory would make you more of an expert or more of an authority on the city. I understand this. I understand the global thing, but instead there's sort of this Baltimore in the mind's eye, which is sort of this fusion of like crabs and quirky things, but also like <laughs> the wire or whatever. It's just like, a, yeah. and I think that the best way to combat that is to be honest about it. I mean, I think this is a city that doesn't like outsiders, but which is pretty normal. Yeah. But what we really, I think the city really doesn't like is when people just don't present themselves honestly. And so like, I don't try to frame myself as a Baltimore writer. I mean, if someone asks where I'm from, I'm going to say that because like, I know that my experience is really different. And I think that kind of, and then I think also like, I mean, for me, I'd say that like I owe my career and my life to the city in so many ways, but it's really the, the uh, affordability, the access to other cities that allowed me to have the career I did. Like when I started to write more, I could take a bus up to New York and like do an interview with like someone that's much, that's very, you know, a big deal and present pitch that to the village voice or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that's because of the access to the city and also because of the affordability of the city. Like, you know, even, even until recently, I recently moved in with my girlfriend, but like, I lived in a one bedroom studio that was $550. I've lived in there. I lived in there until recently, yeah. six years. Like wow. that was massively important to me being able to do the work I do as I was saving that money. I wasn't sort of, you know, those things. And that's not true in a lot of other cities. So we should appreciate that, but not, but sort of get, gain a smart perspective on it before we decide to move on to New York or DC or whatever. I had kind of an interesting experience too. Cause like I tried to do the whole like sort of New York writing thing. I just hated it yeah. so much. I really from 2009, 2012, I was living in New Jersey and was working for spin magazine coming to New York a lot. And I got sick of that. And I moved back in 2013 and was like, I can do the same 
from Baltimore and enjoying myself a lot more. That's that's kind of the vibe that in a spot that I'm in right now because it's like I you know, and talking to different people, you 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 get those different things. And it's like, all right, always about Baltimore. It's always about Baltimore for me. And but at the same time, would I be able to do kind of balance the two? It's like, do I want to make that trip? Not go anywhere crazy, but any place that I look at in terms of a possible relocation, one, it's always looked at as a short-term move. Two, it's like, what's similar to Baltimore? It's like New Orleans, Philadelphia, and that's about it for me. Um, and because of that accessibility, because of the the type of people that are there, and like I said, I, I'm, I'm looking for culture, and, 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 and that's the thing. Um, so let's see, I got two more questions. Um, neither, well, one of them, is, I, I said to you, the other one I did not. Uh, so what would you say your top three traits that you rely on as a writer? That's a good question. That's fun. Um, for me, it's like observation mm-hmm. is first, which is just like, I really sort of practice the kind of reporting that I can't remember who originally said this, but kind of the art of hanging out. Like I'll spend a lot of time in a place or with someone for reporting because it's kind of everything. Like when I was, especially when I was covering protests, I just went to every protest, didn't always report it, but I got to know the people and the players. And they were like, there's that guy from city paper. He's here again. (laughs) And at least shows like I really care. I didn't just show up for one or two. So observation is really important. Um, The second one I would say is probably storytelling, which is I try to, I try to locate a narrative as much as I can. Obviously not all journalism demands that, but like I kind of look for a character or a sequence of events through which I can tell something that's really important um, because I think that's how the story kind of feels more alive and kind of avoids the sort of problems and cliches of sort of daily news journalism that I really, really, really hate personally. I really have a lot of, I have a lot of contempt for the sort of daily news style of reporting. I don't understand. I don't know how useful it is. And so sort of that's sort of like when you can find a person, I mean, you know, really briefly, you know, this, the book, I got a monster came together as a book book that we knew would tell a story. We were able to identify that in a way our main characters are, the main cop, Wayne Jenkins, who was running the task force, and then this defense attorney, Ivan Bates, who was sort of going after him. And we didn't realize that at first. We didn't discover that until we gave a draft of about 75% of the book to some friends, and more than one was like, you got this kind of Ivan and Wayne going after each other thing, but you kind of didn't really build it up. And me and Baynard had to be like, Oh, we didn't even realize we had that. <laughs> then we sort of went back and pushed that. So like, I, that's why I talk about story as I mean by storytelling is like telling the story accurately and truthful for sure. But when you can locate people and figures and events through which it can move, that yeah. really makes the stuff sing. I think that's why it also might feel a little more um, sort of like a limited series or something. Yeah. So observation, storytelling. The last thing I'd say is style. That's also really important for me. Um, you know, I try, I really think about how sentences are constructed, um, word, you know, syntax and diction. I want the work to feel like the thing I'm describing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, readers can tell me if that I could do that well or not. That's not for me to decide, but, um, <laughs> all right, I'll take it. But that's really important for me. And so like something, you know, you see, I think in the book and some of my other more long form writing is this idea of like rhythm and like short sentences or long sentences and like a long sentence might have might be a really long sentence that describes a lot of things. And that for me comes from like speaking to the person who experienced that. And when they were telling me that story, they were like, 
So I'm driving down the street and I'm throwing this cocaine out the window. And there's, there's, you know what I mean? Like you want that sort of stuff to, I want you to feel, I want you to be as immersed in the story as possible and feel it. And that comes through style. Um, Yeah. While also sort of being mindful of not, you know, you don't want to push it too far or make it like sort of impenetrable. But that's sort of really important for me is like observation in terms of like getting to know people and being there a lot. Um, storytelling, which is locating those sort of central narrative or central ideas through which, you know, you kind of hang all the other information on, you know, mm-hmm. it's a story about uh, whatever, you know, you know, policing or whatever, you know, you want to have the people and the characters that can make it feel more real. And then yeah. style is a way to sort of enhance that. That's kind of like how I locate. And that doesn't always happen in stories. Sometimes stories are more conventional and straightforward, but like the things that I really focus on and care about, you know, that's how I want them to feel. And that's what's the, really the structure for the book. So that's kind of my three. And when I feel like I can do those three things, that's yeah. when I go forward with something too. Like if like, obviously there's stories that are important or something comes across and you write it real quick. But when I really decide this is going to be a book, which, yeah. you know, was a big process, or this is going to be a cover story at city paper. It's going to be a long story I'm pitching to the intercept or something. It's when those kind of three things when I can do all those three things, that's when I'm going to move forward with it. If the story doesn't have those, that's sort of a way for the story itself or the thing I think I'm interested in to sort of be communicating to me that maybe you're not as interested in this, or maybe yeah. you haven't done enough work on it yet. Those are sort of, so they're kind of having, you're kind of ends up having this, the story kind of tells you if you're doing a good job or not, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's uh, in a very, very hacky, low rent sort of way. That's the way I approach looking for stories I'm going to review for this game we call New Challenger. It's like, you know, we do the whole Street Fighter thing for New Challenger and it's the Street Fighter theme and we go from story to story and I give my guests or my co-host a keyword that's kind of innocuous and it's like, all right, first of all, does this story make sense to me? And is it weird enough? And it's like, all right, this hits on this level. And that's kind of the approach. It has to hit on this level. It has to be weird. And it's just like, does this have legs? Can we get a solid like three to five minutes out of this and just breaking down and asking these questions? And is it kind of funny? Can we make this funny? And and that's what I look for when I'm like filtering through all of this stuff because week to week you're, you're going through and kind of, you know, it's a lot of different news stories that are out there and some of them are as covered and some of them are still developing and not finished. And it's like, or how many questions do I have about this particular thing? So yeah, that's, um, I think, I think having like a few different things as to why I'm going to move forward with this are, is key. And I, I think I'm going to try that approach. I think I'm going to try your approach a little bit. Yeah. Cause I mean, you said funny, like for me, another thing man, cheating, giving you a fourth one, but like, fine. I do think about like, is this, um, let's say compelling or entertaining. Cause certainly like, I, I hope that people get a lot out of reading our book and I, I hope they enjoy it. I know it's a really intense and messed up story, but it's very important for me that it's also like, I mean, one of the things Bain and I really talked about was like, sometimes the sort of fancy world of journalism has this understanding that if a story is important, it means that it doesn't have to be interesting or entertaining because it's, it's just important, you know? And like we, and sometimes you'll see like the more sort of important a story is the less sort of well-written it is. Cause like, so like trying to think of ways, like it's really important to us that it like feels entertaining or compelling as well. And that ties to storytelling character and all these things as well. But that's really important too. that. Like will people sort of, I think it's why there's been such an explosion of podcasting and true crime 
documentary and stuff. And there's maybe some, we're maybe hitting a bubble on that stuff, but like, it's because people have located a way to like tell an important story and tell it in a compelling way, which often just comes down to like, where do you start the story? Where do you end? Who, who do you decide to focus on? Those things really feed the sort of ideas behind the story and make it, I think, compelling and, and entertaining. I think, I think that's not, I think that sometimes journalists yeah. want to pretend that's not important or something, but like you want it to be something that grabs someone like a city paper. Yeah. You were like, my audience is someone on the bus who grabbed <laughs> it. Like really, you know, we're at a bar and like, I used to ride the bus all the time. So you would literally see people grab the paper and you would see them read something and stop reading and go to something else. It's like a really good, like, almost like beta test where you'd be like, oh, okay, well, that at least that person didn't like that story. They read three paragraphs of it and turned the page to something else or whatever. Like Those things are interesting to know and understand. And you want to try to, you're not going to hook everyone, but you yeah. find those ways to like hook people in, make them care about it. And sometimes with style, as I said, like, on a level um, that they don't always realize, like similar to like movies, like, you know, cutting and light cuts, editing and and score and these things that we kind of feel before we comprehend them are really important. So I try to bring some of those to journalism too. Yeah, I like to speak in quotables and I, I think I'll summarize that whole chunk right there as I like seasoning all my stories. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. That's a great uh, way of putting it. So uh, back, marketing background. Uh, so the, the the last thing I'll ask uh, before I like to get the opportunity to shamelessly plug and shameless, shameless, shameless. But uh, so I'm going to put a little bit of a spin on this. Uh, and it's not about favorites, but it's about what comes to mind. So you, you have folks visiting from out of town. Let's say somebody you met from out of town, they're going to visit. Hey, I want to get an idea of what Baltimore is. I want a place to eat. I want something cultural. And uh, I want a bar to go to. What are your suggestions? One of each. Doesn't have to be your favorite, but just a suggestion that you would throw out there. That's interesting. I mean, I think that the place I kind of try to start people at um, what is is the Crown, actually, the the because it's both sort of a club and that for accessible, but also it kind of actually to some ways brings a lot of people together and, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of different groups and organ and scenes going on there. And so I think it's kind of a good, uh, uh, sort of confluence of interest. That's always the place I encourage people. Um, I also tell people to, um, although I, again, I don't know the exact nature of how it's operating because of COVID, but a thing I always tell people to check out if they can is the Tubman house in West Baltimore run by Eddie Conway, former black Panther. It's outdoor garden. And that's a really important place. And like, if you're in Baltimore on a Sunday, you could head over there and, uh, you, you know, be respectful of the fact that they're doing the work over there, but stop by and see that. And that's a really important thing. And then um, the other place I always, even though it's maybe a cheek, cause it's kind of city County line is for food. I always tell people to go to chaps pit beef okay. um, because I think again, like if you think of it in a way, like the crown is kind of downtown ish, not yeah. really, but you know what I mean? Station it's, on, yeah. it's yeah, it's on North Avenue. It's around sort of, it's ostensibly scans as a place that's like tourist friendly, even though it's not, it's not <laughs> Harbor East or somewhere that I yeah. necessarily wouldn't necessarily wouldn't encourage people to always check out. Cause it's something that's that interesting. And then you have something like 
if you want to go to Chaps, you're going to have to pretty much head out almost to the counties. So you're going to see a lot of the city on the way there. Yeah. If you want to go over to Tubman House, you're going to have to check. You're going to head over to West Baltimore as well. And so it sort of gives you those three points and also very different places. So just the weirdness of Chaps is fascinating <laughs> and, and the you know parking lot of a strip club and that is that was a key thing i was wondering if you were going to mention it. i was like well there's some other entertainment there as well if yeah you like. i mean yeah yeah i mean yeah so like I, I i try to i think that like it's weird because you don't you want to i think that i sometimes have a little bit of a contrarian response when people come to the city because i know what they're looking for yeah and so i almost i don't obviously i don't want to mess with people or send them somewhere they're not going to enjoy it but i try to really push back against the kind of expected places like yeah you're you probably already know about fellas right <laughs> you don't you probably already know about the inner harbor you know i don't need to tell you to go to the inner harbor or whatever and so that, yeah that would be kind of my three places which you could you know you could do that in a you could do that in a weekend pretty easily yeah. i think so thank you for that that's that's great and i, I find it funny that uh uh, you said contrarian because that's a nickname that my girlfriend throws around. I'm the contrarian Aquarian and it's, it's great. Uh, so shameless plugs, be, we will wrap up real quick. Um, your social media website, all that good stuff. Where can he sure. check you out and where can he buy the book? Sure. Um, yeah. So on Twitter and Instagram, I'm no trivia, um, at no trivia, which is a Wu-Tang clan reference. Um, uh, so, you know, you can check me out on there. Um, you can buy the book in, most bookstores i'd really encourage you to buy it from a local bookstore or at least an independent bookstore if you're not in baltimore so in baltimore greedy reads charm city yeah. books ivy books red emma's um you know if i don't like to tell people what to do but don't try to buy it from amazon if you have to please i'm not gonna tell you you know it's also gonna be cheaper on amazon but i really try to encourage people to not shop at amazon um so the and then um if you go to igotamonster.com, all one word, um, we have a nice little website um, that I did my best to make look professional. Um, <laughs> and that has some information about the book. It has a book trailer. There's a pretty um, cool four-minute trailer for the book that was edited together based on, um, really briefly, we worked on a documentary for the book at the same time. Oh, so a lot of the interviews that you that make up the book, like that led to the creation of the book were filmed. Um, and so there's a book trailer that kind of puts some of that together. And there's a documentary with the same name as the book. I got a monster that um, should be in some film festivals. Uh, it actually was supposed to premiere last year at the Maryland film festival, but because of COVID that yeah. didn't happen. So it's been resubmitted to a bunch of festivals. Um, and then hopefully by summer or later this year, um, that'll be streaming somewhere. I hope, um, we'll see, but, um, yeah, there's that, uh, that's about it. Um, you know, um, something that me and, uh, Lisa Snowden McCray, a reporter here are working on is, um, very briefly, we started a new newspaper in Baltimore after the city paper closed. Um, the funding for that was pulled by four months, but we are in the process of rebuilding and reimagining that paper for the future. So keep an eye out for, a. Uh, Baltimore beat and ways to support independent uh, nonprofit journalism. Yeah. So that's great. Um, so thank you. Uh, this has been wonderful. Thank you. This is great. So for Brandon Soderberg, I am Rob Lee saying that there's art in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. <laughs> <laughs>